0: Hi, everybody. I'm Jeff Picoro, joined alongside my stable mates here, Joe Claves and Jim Perry. And welcome into the track kitchen. Tom Leach, my partner. Tom, how you doing? Doing well. The biscuits and gravy ready Ooh, at the track kitchen? Yes. You, of course you know that. We, you know what? I want to start with horse racing, Tom, because that's, that's one of your passions. You do so much out at Keeneland and stuff as well. And, you know, we just finished this July meet out at Keeneland. And, you know, to me, it's almost like there's a silver lining there in the five days with no fans. They did $63.3 million for a handle in those five days without any on-track handle. So is that, if you want to call it that, and I hate calling it a silver lining, but we saw the strength of horse racing across the country here.
1: Yeah, it's been going on, I guess, since in late March. I know my routine, just uh, being a racing fan and a, you know, not having any other sports to go to. I've uh, told my family it's the only sport until golf and NASCAR started. the only sport I could watch where I didn't already know who won. You get tired of replays. And so I think uh, some new folks have gravitated to racing and hopefully they can uh, keep some of them around for, you know, as long term fans. But, you know, it was a great meet at Keeneland and I would love, to, I don't know if it fits into, to their routine long term, I'd love to see something like that—a uh, little boutique beat in the uh, you know third meet for Keenan. I don't know if that's something I even you know would consider, but it was, it was sure fun to be covering a sporting event last week.
0: You know, we just had Jenny was on with uh, Tom Drury, who whose art collector won. Obviously, the, the bluegrass there over the Philly, a, a great win for him. And, you know, that's a guy that I know you know well. He's been knocking around for a long, long time. And you love to see someone like that, a, a local, if you will, in state guy, take that big step forward like that.
1: Yeah. It's, you know, I, I remember when Calvin Burrell was riding street Sense in the Derby and Calvin was a, you know, a, a Churchill guy and, uh, had never had a real shot. Been in the Derby a few times, but it was always on a long shot. Finally had a chance, and he won with Street Sense with a fantastic ride. And all of a sudden, he wins three of four Derbys. So, uh, you know, a guy like Tom Derue uh, does well with Art Collector. Maybe he's fortunate enough, to, he's fortunate enough to win a Kentucky Derby. All of a sudden, he gets uh, a better. Class of horses sent into his barn, and uh, it, you know it elevates uh, his game. Like other sports, you know, coach does well with a, a team when uh, he finally gets finally gets some talent more than they've had before. Uh, because look at percentages; and Tom Drew's numbers are always good. You know, I look at somebody like Claver Farm, who's used him, and I know those folks well. And uh, you know, they're looking for good horsemen that are going to mm-hmm. work with their stock. And so, um, you know, he's done well, and I finally. Getting his hands on a really top-class course, and he's showing that he can do just as well as anybody else. All
0: right, Tom, I'm going to ask you the sixty-four thousand-dollar question now: Will we be playing college football in a month?
1: I, I, I can uh, go kind of at the, the uh, side, sideways on, on that. I don't know that it'll be in, you know in a month on Labor Day weekend. Right. I think they, I think they'll play. I'm kind of thinking, and just no know inside knowledge. I'm you kind of, you know, uh, it's like reading past performances. You just kind of look at the, the landscape and what, where the trend is. I'm hoping that we start here in a week or so to see some of the the numbers start to trend in, back in a good way. And if that happens, then I could see you know the Power Five conferences maybe pushing back a couple of weeks in and say, let's let's look watch these numbers and let's see how it goes for Major League Baseball and the NBA and to get a, a look at those two pro leagues and you know, team sports going through this, to get to watch them for two or three weeks takes you into mid-August, and you're, if you if you go that long, then you don't have enough time to uh, start practice and get ready by Labor Day weekend. So, I'm still thinking they're going to play, but I'm starting to think it may be you know a little bit of a postponement.
0: You know the one thing that that has been brought to my attention, or the one thing that I think of when I keep hearing this. Well, let's we can play a, a short schedule in the spring, but I'm thinking for you that would be absolutely crazy because basketball would be in full throw. If you hope, I, I, to me, it just doesn't make sense to try to play a football season, even if it's six or eight games in the spring, get a, a what a month off, and then get ready for another fall season in 2021. And I think the thing that people don't Think about is what happens to all these kids that are seniors in high school who leave early and and go to that college in spring? Would they be eligible to play in what would be the twenty twenty season in the spring of twenty twenty one? That was that's a big question I have that I've never heard answered by anyone.
1: Yeah, you get uh, you open up uh, one door and then it creates some other questions. Um, I, I I would think that. Just because it introduces so many other variables like this one in the NFL draft, the players set out, um, that they want to, that's an, an option they have to consider, but I, I think they would, uh, most, my guess would be, uh, that would be further down the list, and, uh, like to make that as the, as the last resort. I uh, saw something today from, uh, which coach this was, suggesting. Uh, kind of an interesting curveball for basketball, not football, but basketball is like well, when all these schools, um, send their, uh, students home at Thanksgiving, as it looks like they are all doing, could you, uh, play an abundance of basketball games while there is nobody on, on campus? Because originally, uh, I think people were thinking that would, would, would not be the way you'd want to go, but now it's maybe looking like, well, if, you look around the country, and most schools are doing a pretty good job, it seems like, of keeping the you know, numbers down mm-hmm. uh, in terms of positive tests. While they just have the football players almost in a, in a bubble, but you know, once classes start back and you know, you have parties and classes and all the things that go with college, it becomes much more challenging. So, um, you know, it's just. It seems like every day you kind of go back and forth on, sure. um, you know, optimism level and somebody throws a new idea out there. You're like, well, what does that work? <laughs> um, I, I feel for the people who are decision-makers, because the clock's ticking as far as trying to have a football season this fall, and um, there's still a lot of, you know, they're kind of flying in the fog still in a lot of ways.
0: We're speaking with Tom Leach, the voice of the Kentucky Wildcats. And, Tom, the one thing, and I think Mark Story wrote the uh, story <laughs> in the paper this morning about losing the rivalry with the University of Louisville uh, because of this, that they won't play this year in football. And, you know, you see what, you know, what they've been trying to build in Louisville and, and it's really become the focus for UK in recruiting And in this game, it's become, we have to beat Louisville, is what the coaches at UK are saying, to kind of own the state of Kentucky, right? And to not have that game, I think it's not just a loss for the fans, but uh, for both of the schools as well.
1: I'm uh, I'm
0: optimistic.
1: I'm I'm hopeful that if they come to, say, a conference-only schedule, that they might still be able to preserve a game like that because you've got South Carolina Clemson, Georgia, Georgia Tech, sure. Uh Florida Florida State. Um and that uh, on that last weekend of the regular season. And uh you know, if all goes well by that time they could uh you know hopefully preserve those games. So maybe it's conference only plus you know uh one more in, in that situation, you know, where the ACC and the SEC, the SEC sure. agree on that. And maybe the the other teams in those leagues that don't have those rivalries, maybe they can, you know, pick up a game with somebody nearby that we get. Uh, so I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed on that, that it's not, won't, well, that uh, there will still be a chance for that game to happen.
2: Hi, Tom, Jim Perry here. Got another question for you related to the football, but uh, being my family and Jeff and I playing football together back in 70s, something. And, uh, our fan base, Jeff, used to come down to Cincinnati and dump all his celebrities in our tailgate because we had one of the biggest <laughs> ones at, uh, at Kentucky, and we took good care. We've had as many 600 people at our tailgate alone and feed them all for free. Oh, my Lord. Oh, oh yes. We were we were the best. Um, with that said, I'm wondering about the tailgate because you'll have 60,000 fans at a football game. You maybe only have 30,000 this year, what we hear, but you'll have 100,000 people standing outside enjoying the game watching it on TV. Have you heard anything? Have they officially canceled the tailgating, or do you know?
1: No, I don't think they've, uh, as far as I know, officially canceled anything. I would, I think the, the first priority is trying to be able to play games, um, and then see if they could get you know some level of of uh, fan uh, into the stadium. And NASCAR did a race with I think around twenty thousand uh, earlier this uh, this past Wednesday. So we'll see how you know that plays out after a couple of weeks. If they don't have any rash or positive tests out of that, and um, you know, then my guess would be that probably there wouldn't be any tailgating at, l- at least to start. And then you know, if if the world gets in a better place, that's the thing is you know as we move along, we've seen this with horse racing where they started with absolutely no fans and then they've been able to to bring in owners uh, and let. think uh, Monmouth is having a big day where they're having able to, to sell. A limited number of, of tickets, uh, but then you also had a, a flare up of the COVID with among the jockey colony out in Southern California. And so they've had to pull back on some things with jockeys being able to travel around the country to ride races. So, uh, I think that'll give, you know, depending on how this virus goes, it'll, you know, go back and forth and, um, something that might not be there at the you know, start of, of a season. If things go well, maybe it could come in at some point.
0: You know, Tom, along those lines, you start to wonder how long do you go before it starts to affect, and I know this is probably a question that you can't answer, but the Breeders' Cup, where you're bringing in horses from all over the world and you're bringing in owners from all over the world and horse fans from all over the world here to Kentucky. It, you know, it, it, it you're starting to get to the point where you have to start worrying about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got a plan, certainly if you're Keelan or whoever's hosting it, Keelan is this year. Uh, the, the one thing I, I would say about at least racetracks have going for them. You see this with NASCAR, those facilities are, are so big mm-hmm. that they can, um, you know, spread out. Um, and so with, uh, you know, with racing, you know, Keelan's not as big a physical plant as, as Churchill, but still, you know, maybe you, you sort of can have capacity right now, but, uh, and especially, you know, with, with tents and things. Again, if, if the virus is cooled down, then, you know, you could have some level of attendance, and uh, maybe it's, you know, and keenan has got such a, a lot of space there. Maybe you've got areas where, well, you can come out and enjoy the experience, tailgate up on the hill or something. Either you know, maybe you can't go into the track. I mean, I'm just, you know, spitballing. I don't know. Uh, but I think, um, you know, they, they certainly, to your question, have to be planning for it now, and you have to you know, at some point sell tickets to the public on the expectation um, whatever you know at, at the moment, you, you decide to start selling the tickets. You kind of go on what you know then, and then uh, adapt accordingly. Same way, I guess people are, you know, with other sporting events. Is uh, you know you uh, go on what you know today, but you also know that what is known may change a lot tomorrow or next week.
0: Yeah. Tom, I would be remiss. I didn't ask you one more question, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. And uh, you, you know, on, on your radio show every day I know you've talked about this but the the what John Calipari has done and what he has started and he's gotten some coaches from all over the country that have kind of fallen in line with him uh with the the minority uh hiring or at least opportunities uh for minorities uh, within uh this that he has put together tell me a little bit about that and, and what you think about that and what what he's been able to do it's amazing
1: I think it's wonderful, and um, what I heard, I've heard Cal say is that he decided to focus on something he uh, had some knowledge of, uh, or could he make a difference within his area of expertise, and so it's you know within college athletics and within athletic departments, and so I, I think in any 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 uh, career path, if you can see
3: uh,
1: people that that look like you, whether it's race or gender that uh, are in a job that uh, you would uh, aspire to, or maybe didn't even think you you could aspire to, and all of a sudden you see uh, somebody that looks like, you're that job. A female has just hired a a new uh, president that's going to take over next year, their first female president. So all of a sudden, maybe, you know, young girls are looking at that and thinking, oh, I didn't know that was a job I could really aspire to. I guess I can in the uh in the pipeline and uh, administration and then those are decision makers so um it, you know it's a longer term uh issue but uh it's a long you know, it's, a, it's an issue that country has been fighting for a long time and it's probably not going to get fixed you know overnight certainly so um you get uh, people in decision making positions that then uh, maybe uh considering a wider scope of people than were before, for whatever reason, life experience, whatever it is, that um, I would think uh, that uh, I could do nothing but but be a positive.
0: Well, Tom, you and I could sit here and talk sports all afternoon long, and I appreciate you (laughs) taking a little bit of time out of your afternoon, but uh, thanks a lot, buddy, and I will talk to you soon, all right?
1: I am just thrilled to uh, know that uh, coming soon, I can... Watch you work in Reds baseball. So oh. That's another one, another sport. So if, if, uh, if that goes well, then uh, it opens the door for other sports. So
0: exactly right. keep them coming. All right, buddy. Thank you very much, Tom. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Track Kitchen. I'm Jeff Picoro, and we now have the part of the show that I really enjoyed Scott Pugh from Three Staves. And for those of you who don't know what a stave is, it's basically what They make a barrel of bourbon out of. So, we're transitioning into the show to talk a little bit of bourbon. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun, Scott, because you've got
3: a rich history in the bourbon making process, right? I do. I've been in the industry for a little over uh, 17 years now and have started from uh, label concept all the way to putting a bottle on a shelf.
0: What is label concept?
3: Well, it's uh when you have a consumer or a, a company that comes in and they've got an idea for a label, uh just a point in case, I uh, worked with uh, Bland's for a long time. Right. So before uh, they came out with that, they had to come up with the concept of that product. And at that time, uh, Elmer T. Lee was uh, the master distiller out at uh, Buffalo, or it wasn't Buffalo Trace at that time, it was actually Ancient Age. Mm-hmm. And he came in, they said, you know, what do we do to help this industry right now? And he said, I've got a concept for something that uh, Colonel Blanton used to do, which was a single barrel bourbon. Let's go ahead and uh, utilize, uh, you know, Blanton's on there as the name and come out with a single barrel bourbon. And that's kind of where you got the, uh, the premium category started. Can
0: you get me a bottle because you can't find it anywhere? It's
3: hard to find, but I've got some uh, sources.
0: (laughs) Interesting to say the least, obviously. uh, Jimmy, you you and him have been friends for a long time, and Mm -hmm. it's interesting to me um, what we were just talking about. Scott, let's just talk about this on the air, about what what we're going to do here is a tasting. But you said there are several
3: different kinds of tastings, and this is basically a
0: quality testing that we're going to do, right?
3: Absolutely. I like to uh, refer to it as almost like a wellness checkup for you and me. So uh what they'll do is they will pull barrels out uh, randomly at uh, different times of the year, and they will check to see what the quality of that barrel is, because not every barrel is going to be made for a premium product. Um You know, take for your single barrels, you want something that's going to be uh, premium and have that uh, taste profile to it. They'll pull those barrels out uh, randomly. They'll check them. They'll say, okay, let's go ahead. Let's age it a little bit longer, or this thing's ready to bottle right now. And if uh, they don't see that it's ready to bottle or it's trending towards that bottling process, They'll either put it back, uh, age it a couple more years, pull it again after that point, or they'll say, you know what, this just isn't going to fit the profile. Let's move it to a you know secondary category. So instead of being a single barrel, a small batch, they'll put it into uh, more, I wouldn't say blended, but mixed barrels, which is where you get uh, some of your lower-priced bourbons out there.
0: But to be a Kentucky straight bourbon, it has to be aged for how long in
3: Okay. You have a minimum of two years. Uh, actually, uh, four years is the period where they have the cutoff of putting an age statement on a label. So anything under four years old has to have an age statement on it. Anything four years and Bob, you don't know how old it is. And Then you get the corn. Well, the corn is 51%, but um, you can actually make bourbon anywhere in the U.S. The only thing is Kentucky is the Kentucky. only state that can put their name on it. So you can have Alabama bourbon, California bourbon, uh, New York bourbon, but they can't put their name on it.
0: That's very interesting. Yeah. All right. So this that we're going to try today is a two year old in the cast bourbon, right?
3: Correct. So what this is, is it's really your first uh, stab at saying, okay, how close are we to getting this ready for bottling? Is this something that we want to age a little bit further? Mm-hmm. Do we want to take it to a three and four year old and beyond? Or do we look at this as a two year old that we can start putting into a lower price, uh, you know, product? To, to put on the shelf so
0: what are you looking for when you take the taste of this? I mean, you look at the color it 's mm-hmm. a little it 's a little lighter, Correct. than a lot of the bourbons, right because it
3: it hasn 't interacted with the staves at that point, right. Right. so okay. yeah the uh, the charcoal in there and that that 's really where you get most of your flavor is the I mean, interaction this almost looks it. like a, a beer without the head on it right if you went to a distillery, you could actually smell beer as you 're driving down there because of the uh, you know the way that they ferment it mm-hmm.
0: okay, so what are you looking for when you taste this are you are you, are you trying to See, does it have some of the, the, the staples that you want out of whatever you're looking for for the certain, if it's a bullet, mm-hmm. it, if it's a, a willet, it, if it's a maker's mark, if it's a weller?
3: Well, each uh, each company uh, has their own uh, basically recipe, mm-hmm. their own recipe and their own uh, yeast strain, So they kind of know the, uh, the kind of taste that they're aiming for. So when you go into it, the first thing you want to do is really nose it and you start to smell. This one's a little bit younger. So you're going to smell a little bit more of like a corn uh, nose to it, a little bit of vanilla. You could probably get into um, somewhat of a uh, caramel, a little bit light on the nose to it. Is this a little bit more? It's going to be a sharper flavor. Medicinal smell? It, is, it? It's going to have that uh, with the uh, the alcohol coming out of it. That's so, what I, yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to yeah, say. I could yeah. smell the yeah, alcohol you're, more. Than... You're not going to have that stave uh, kind of flavor or mm-hmm. the nose coming out. The longer it's in there, you're going to pick up more of like chocolates, raisins. Right. Uh, you're going to get like a hint of a cinnamon. Kind of a spice on there, you know, burnt flavors on it. Uh, tobacco's, uh, cigar, you know, you know, the 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 richer, deeper kind of flavors into it. So for people who've never tried it in this fashion, so mm-hmm. what do
0: you do? Do you roll it into your mouth? Do you, uh, you know, wine? You try to get in there and yeah. bring air in. How do you do a bourbon tasting out of what we're. Sipping out of
3: you really you want to take a a small uh, taste on it and let it kind of uh, roll from the uh, the front of the tongue to the back of the tongue before you you know a lot of people it's it's like wine when you discard it before you would uh, drink it but uh, obviously why waste it? (laughs) Thank you. I mean, it is early Saturday. Let's try it. So, Correct. So we just we, we just want to take a small yeah, swig. Yeah, go ahead and take a small swig and uh, let it kind of roll from the uh, front of the tongue to the back. And uh, you'll feel this is going to be sharper than what our, we have a three-year-old here as well. And you would be able to see the transition from that two-year-old to the three-year-old. It's going to become a little bit smoother. You're going to start to pull out more of those uh, richer flavors of chocolates. This one's going to have a little bit of a burn coming down your This your has chest. got the
0: heat in the back of your mouth as you start Correct. to swallow it. Yeah. You can feel it get up into your nasal... Absolutely, yeah,
3: and and like I say, once you start getting into the um, the more aged product, and even if it's a higher proof, you're going to start. It's going to be a little bit smoother at that point. So the burn's going to be more towards the front, less on the back. But it's going to be because that flavor opens up towards the back. So
0: as you took a taste of this, correct? Is this where you want this to be now?
3: Uh, this is actually this particular bourbon. I feel really good about this. Uh, it, it's in. It's a sweeter taste profile. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit sharp, but it's gonna. That sharpness is gonna, uh, you know, it's gonna ward off towards uh, the, you know, the three to four year mark. So I like the direction it's going.
0: As a bourbon aficionado as you are, do you drink it neat?
3: Do you put it on ice? Do you? It's what, a, it's you a sin do? to put it on ice. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's really not. Uh, I, I actually asked um, Harlan Wheatley, the, he's the uh, master distiller at a, uh, Buffalo Trace. One time, said uh, what. Because I was over in Europe for so many years, and they before they you know decided this was something that you could drink and eat, they wanted to make cocktails out of it. And I said, "What's a good cocktail that we can make out of this?" And I know it's 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 blasphemy to do that. He said, "Well, actually, the best cocktail would be just to put it on a, a piece of ice and let it uh, melt down. Because what happens is you'll you'll find different flavors in it at the higher uh, proof value on there. So you'll you'll add uh, water to it, and that water opens it up a little bit. So he said, this actually cools it down." And opens it up at the same time, so it does become more of a cocktail just to put the ice on it. But you know, when you start looking at you know UK football games, bourbon and cooks, makers and cooks, things like that, you you, you want to just if you're a true aficionado of it, you do want to drink it neat as as much as you can. What's the difference between ice and bourbon and water? Well, the ice lets it open up uh, over time, okay. so you can add the water into it, and when you add that water, that's where you stick. But when you add the ice into it, that ice slowly melts, so you can actually go from something that's kind of like a uh, a caramel flavor down to a floral flavor at that point, more of a citrus flavor. Uh, Some of the single barrels, you come in there, you're like, there's a lot of uh, vanilla, caramel in this. All of a sudden, that ice starts to melt down on it. Now you're tasting orange flavors, um, You know, more of that citrus flavor to it once it opens up and cools down. You know, guys,
0: when I think of a taster, I don't think of a guy that's six foot four, 255 pounds, <laughs> chiseled out of rock, telling me that it's got floral flavors and cinnamon and, and things like that. It just, it doesn't, the profile doesn't match. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun to match a voice and a figure with what people do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very interesting stuff.
3: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the reason I got into it was the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the ability to actually see the change in the product, you know, from, from day one until whenever it's ready to go into the bottle. And again, like you said, you know, having the different taste profiles in there, whether it be water, whether it be ice, or just having it neat. uh, And it's it's almost like a wine. You open it up, you let it sit there, and it's going to go through a taste uh, difference over time as it uh, sits there and lets the air interact with it.
0: Well, can we tell people what? Three Staves actually is because you do you have if I walked into the liquor barn could I say mm-hmm. I want a Three Staves bourbon but they look at me cross eyed or what
3: they they look at you cross eyed so we're we're more of a, a company that um, that consults with other uh, you know small batch uh, companies uh, craft distillers and uh, individuals so if somebody comes to us they say listen we've got a concept for a uh, it doesn't have to be a bourbon it can be a, a gin a rum a tequila. We, uh, we take them from that concept, you know, from the concept to the shelf. So we can procure, uh, product form, whether it be bourbon, gin, rum, tequila, anything, uh, components. We sit there, we work with them on, uh, the backstory for their labels. Uh, we also have an equity, uh, side of our uh, company that we can, uh, help with financing on, uh, any, any type of, uh, you know, any type of product that they want to put uh, into concept. And then we also work with celebrities, which is very interesting. I was
0: going to say, so you guys do mm-hmm. kind of like, uh, and, and I guess two of the the biggest ones that, that people are George Clooney, mm-hmm. uh, with the, the, the Casamigos uh, that ended up selling for billions of dollars, right? The, that's oh, absolutely, killer. yeah. And then I think Matthew McConaughey has his own – brand of is it wild turkey i think it's a, a
3: texas bit. kind of uh wild turkey yeah. he, he was working with wild turkey but they made a uh, label for him based out of uh, texas on it so yeah it's kind of so it's a little touch kind of, to it mm-hmm.
0: that's what you hope someone of that ilk comes in and you make some of the form and it becomes correct yeah you know. yeah
3: yeah, we, and, and we, we've got a, uh, we've got a nice list of people that, uh, that we've been in contact with mm-hmm. and, uh, are continuing to, uh, to move forward with. And so they come to us. They, they see the opportunity in the category. And, and you know, again, it doesn't have to be bourbon. It can be, you know, a, a white spirit, a, uh, a gin, a rum, a sure. tequila, but, uh, they come to us because they know we have the, uh, the experience in it. Of either sourcing that product, putting them together with a distillery, and then helping them kind of build it out, uh, you know, from start to finish. And what's the end game? Do they want to continue to keep their name on that, or they do they want to get rid of it, like uh, George did? <laughs>
0: so there could be some big things for three mm-hmm. days in the very near future too. You're working with some people, mm-hmm. and that is in the bourbon category too, correct?
3: Oh, absolutely. That's where we started from. That's our bread and butter right there. But uh, you know, again, we're 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 more than happy to uh, to branch out. Uh, anybody that uh, that. It has the, you know, an interest in coming in and doing a like private barrel selection or, you know, going out and putting their own bottle together. Uh, we're more than happy to work with them. So do
0: you guys actually have a dis, an actual distillery? We that you work out of, or we where, have where a
3: distillery that we work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pr- primarily, but, but we also have others in, in the pipe work. So if I needed something different than what we offer, I can get on the phone, make sure. a call and we can put people together and, and run out there and, and we could be there in 45 minutes.
2: I think, Scott, how many labels are on the shelf now? I thought it was 116, but somebody told me it's even gone up.
3: That's probably just at the liquor barn. Yeah, exactly,
2: (laughs) right at the liquor barn.
3: Yeah, there's there's so many uh, bourbons out there right now, and it's regional too. I mean, you you can go to New York and find different bourbons up there because of regional uh, bourbons. You know, you can go to Colorado and find regional. You can go to California and find regional. But uh, the number, it's hard to put, it even put a number on it right now because you just don't know how many are out there from that regional aspect. Nationally, I mean, it's it's the big guys, but uh, they've got you know quite a few offsets of everything they do. How much has the Japanese influence influenced what's going on in the bourbon industry now? Oh, it was huge. I mean, that, that's how the uh, company that I first started with uh, became because they came over with Toyota and they started taking bourbon back over to Japan. And that's when their economy was booming and what happened was all of a sudden they hit a recession and they had a ton of bourbon over there that they couldn't get rid of which is how the company I started with actually formed so uh we took the uh, the bourbon they couldn't get rid of and we started selling it into the european markets which at that point bourbon wasn't really the uh the go-to drink for them it was all scotch you know aged products and so they came back and they said uh what can we do on this uh, you know and there there were other guys you know Jimmy Russell um and yeah, so you, had, you had, yeah, Jimmy Russell, you had, uh, you know, uh, all these different guys from the different distilleries going over to Europe, and we would sit there and do seminar after seminar after seminar, and you would see the first, uh, first year or two we were there, we might get 20 people in there. After about year five, it was standing room only. Wow. And they, so they, they were people coming in there just trying anything they could to get in there and, uh, and sample any of this bourbon, because the, the funny story, first trip I took was over to Sweden. And we were doing, we were going up to guys like addicts sitting there tasting. Sure. So the guy comes up and he's in a bur- he's in a whiskey club and he says, what are we tasting today? I said, we're tasting a single barrel bourbon from Kentucky. He said, oh, no, 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 not doing that. He goes, I can't believe I wasted my money on this. I said, well, I'll tell you what, man, why don't you sit down? You've already paid for it. You're here. Let's go ahead. Let's do the tasting. By the end of the night, he asked me how he could buy all of our product, <laughs> and that's at first he, he was like just he was appalled at first
0: okay now what this is a what a pint bottle is a half pint what, this is a is a uh, it's pint.
3: pint yeah, okay, mm-hmm. so
0: I know that's not for sale I said mm-hmm. what would something like that be worth i mean is there any worth to that bottle right there with that two or that three year old mm-hmm. bottle of
3: the actual I'd bottle sure. itself no but the barrel that it came from yeah. absolutely because it's it's impossible to find Kentucky bourbon right now mm. so you can find bourbon uh, we talked about it earlier up in Indiana the old Seagram's plant or the MPG up sure. there but to uh find Kentucky bourbon is an absolute rarity right now and to find it going into a 4-year-old uh, age uh category is even rarer so what like I say once you get that 4-year-old category that's that's the benchmark you don't have to put the age on there and so when people don't see the age, they're just tasting it based on the quality. They're not tasting it, okay, well, this is an 8-year-old, it's 15-year-old, 12-year-old, so it's got to be good. And and that was the old uh, scotch mentality. The older it is, the better it's got to be, and that's not necessarily the case.
0: Well, that was going to be a, a, a personal question for me to you is I have some bottles that were my grandfather's mm-hmm. that, are, that still have the seal that says – because in Ohio he where he lived, it, it has a date on it, 1966, mm-hmm. 1969 – but once you take it out of the cask, it quits aging, correct? So that's once absolute, it's in the bottle, yeah. it's just an old bourbon that's seven year old bourbon when it was mm-hmm. taken out of the cask in nineteen sixty six, right?
3: Yeah, that that you're absolutely correct. It's just uh, collecting dust at that point. <laughs> so Does it mm-hmm. make
0: does it do anything? If it's been sitting on his shelf since nineteen sixty, would it change?
3: Long,
0: the way it taste at all, do you know.
3: As long as it hasn't uh, been opened, it won't. Uh, but if it's been opened and it hasn't been uh, what they call chill filtered, it mm-hmm. could uh, do what they call flocculation, and it gets a cloudy look to it. So uh, anything that's under a hundred proof that hasn't been chill filtered will flocculate on there, so it gets that cloudy uh, kind of appearance to it. Oh, uh, you know, when if we were to send that over to uh, say Japan and the bottles uh, from the uh, the heat and the pressure in the container said uh, uncorked on that, they would send it right back to us on a quality check. So, yeah, it you know, as long as it hasn't been open, you're in pretty good shape. All right, now this is the three-year-old that I'm going
0: to take a taste of here. hmm So, you can... that's a lot different. That's, well, that's a lot different than the two. I mean, it is a significant difference in the taste of the
3: two. Mm-hmm. And this is the same it's, it's, it's the exact same uh, bourbon, right? It's the same well, you recipe. You really call the exact same, yeah, it's yeah. the same recipe. Same recipe, every, different barrel. Every mm-hmm. barrel is completely different, right? Yeah, yeah. And every, every barrel is different, uh, not just from, uh you know, it, it could be the same recipe and it would be aged longer. But if you put that barrel on one floor of one warehouse and put that same barrel with that same bourbon from the same recipe in another, uh, you know, level in a different warehouse, the uh, eco-climates are going to completely change the taste profile. Because maybe
0: it. it's in the sun ha- most
3: of the day, when mm-hmm. the other
0: one is never in the sun? or
3: Well, you know, the, the heat print. rises in the, uh, in the uh, warehouse. So wow. what you'll find is you'll find a lot of your, um, your higher-end bourbons are going to age on the bottom of the warehouse because they're going to be in there longer. Nice. And then a lot of your lower-end are going to be on the top. Do you move them
0: the, the kegs around, or do you just keep them?
3: Depends. So, some, uh, some distilleries will. They'll do what they call an X-cross uh, uh, formation. Right. So they'll move them from top to bottom uh, that way. Uh, you know the smaller ones don't. They they leave them in there and they let them ace. They let them, they let them do their dance, basically.
0: That is, well, this has been really interesting and and very informative. Yeah. Of, of hey, I I'm I'm amazed because you know I think we talked about this too the the explosion too of moonshine. Mm-hmm. Which is basically bourbon before it's put into the barrel, right? Yeah,
3: White Dog. For people well know, right? I mean, that's,
0: <laughs> yeah. basically that's the, the ingredients to bourbon.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's essentially it's it's a White Lightning or a White Dog that hasn't aged and hadn't had that interaction with the other uh, charring of the barrel. So, and, and again, you can tell the difference. This one gets um, there's a lot more flavor that jumps up right. on it. I it's was, kind of buttery, more of the caramel comes out into it, a little bit I of the chocolate, was the
0: caramel that you mm-hmm. fell on the side of your mouth. It's totally different taste in one year. Out uh, of the same, it, it's amazing these it say, I would say these would be two completely different kinds of bourbon.
3: Yeah, yeah, and, and like you know, you had that burn going down longer on the uh, first one. This one kind of like it, it doesn't have that same burn, but it's got more flavor. That power comes out into it, but it's a it's a soft power. Yeah,
0: no, you're right. Yeah, wow. Well, thank you very much again. This has been. Very interesting, very, uh, you got a ton of knowledge, man.
3: Yeah, I appreciate Learned it. A
0: little, a little education <laughs> here.
2: On I've the got to say this. For the time, I, I'll just like to be around Scott and listen to him talk. I will learn more. Now, in you just like him because he can defend you. And <laughs> well, yeah, we go to a bar and I say, you know, give me $100 in case you owe me money someday or Scott won't have <laughs> to. Yeah, no, but, uh, no, no. he's a, he's a talented, talented yeah. man when it comes to this area and you can tell oh, this is, an area that, in, in the company, he's a he's marketing guru. Three Staves. Be
0: looking for maybe something coming out of uh, in the yeah. very near future. Could be some big news coming out of the Three Staves distillery.
3: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I, for
0: those of you who grew up in Kentucky know the name, Foster Brooks. It's kind of how I feel now after all this tasting we've been doing here. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Jeff Mattingly is going to join us now, the owner and distiller for Bourbon 30 in Georgetown. It's a craft distillery there. And uh Jeff, I'll tell you what, uh your family goes back in this business a long, long time into the late eighteen hundreds, am I correct?
4: That is correct. Eighteen forty five, Uncles John and Ben.
0: So you've been doing this for a while, my man. And doing it good, well, I should say.
4: I tell you what, I look pretty good for being that old.
2: <laughs>
4: but so Uh, My uncle's Johnny Ben. Now, if Scott's on the line here, if he's on the horn, Scott is a historian himself and uh, also a a very close personal friend of mine. And Scott is actually the one that helped uh, me, uh, helped Bourbon 30 Spirits figure out our lineage. And uh, so Bourbon 30 Spirits uh, Distillery, um, so... We married into the Willett family. Um, we actually have uh, relatives in the Makers-Mark family and uh, supposedly in the uh, Basil Hayden, fo- uh, fo- co-founders of um, uh, Mattingly Moore, um, let's see, Patterson's, and Bell of Nelson. So we're one of the oldest uh, uh, families in the bourbon industry. And by the way, I have a gentleman uh, with me. Um, uh, on this call here, and I'll let him introduce himself.
5: Nice to meet you guys.
4: Um, uh, today was actually the first day
5: I met Jeff, uh, but uh, you guys may know me uh, on Instagram as Overpriced Bourbon. Um, uh, today was the first day I came up here to meet Jeff or his to uh, do, do a barrel pick, and the Madeline family has treated me like family, and I cannot express to you guys enough uh, the fact that when we came here, I've been to many distilleries. Uh, when we came here, we were not just another person in a line. We were a name and we were family. Uh, Jeff opened up his establishment. He opened up, uh, his passion and, and, and what he does every day for us. And we, uh, dug in. We, <laughs> we, tr- we've been trying, uh, the multitude of different barrels to develop our own blend, our own bourbon something that is passionate to us. And that's what the Madeline family is all about, is the experience from day one is, uh, is, the Madeline family has been about experience and uh, passion. And to me, that's what the bourbon bourbon experience is about personally. Um, It's not about name brand. It's not about who you are. It's about the experience and who you are individually and what you like to drink. And Jeff embodies that. And the Madley family embodies that. So we are very thankful to be a part of that, and uh, we will embrace that in the future.
0: Well, if Jeff is on, it, you know, it, it's very interesting to me, and, and tasting the, the bourbons that you brought in, Scott. Jeff, I guess what you do as a craft brewer is people come to you and say, we want either a our own line or our own keg or our own cask or our own brand. Of bourbon, and you provide that for them, correct?
4: So, for example, uh, Travis came in today uh, along with uh, several other groups, and they wanted to do a blend. And they said, um, you know, uh, we're looking for this, this, and this. And my response was, you know what, have at it. We've got about 130 barrels here, and um, it, it's it's the element of surprise, <laughs> Um I I, I don't the, the thing about it is most people our business model is one hundred percent unique and different. And um it, it's you know what, Travis, I'm gonna leave this you answer that question right there. About how you came in, you was you was expecting one thing, but then um you you were opened up to something totally different that you weren't looking for. So when we first came in, and Jeff's
5: absolutely right. When we first came in, uh, you know, when when you come into a normal distillery uh, to do a barrel pick as a group or a liquor store or an individual, you are given, you know, two to three barrels to pick from. And we were not given that. We were we were given the opportunity to experiment, to try, to blend certain things that uh, we wouldn't have the opportunity to if. We were at a larger distillery. I've been at many distilleries before, and if you don't like the three barrels that are in front of you, then you don't really have a choice. Uh, at Jay Maddenly, they give you a choice. They give you the opportunity to find what you like personally and, and blend it and bottle it. And it's been fantastic. They've, been, they've treated us like family from the get-go. So um, I, I really, honestly, I hope to be back here for a second experience. And, uh, and move forward with the Jay Badley family.
0: Wow. Well, you know, Scott, you taught me this just drinking here, and, and I know you know this as well, Jeff, but everyone's palate is different. I am not a big fan of, let's say, a, a Pappy or Four Roses. I just, it, it doesn't, I don't appreciate that. I love Basil Hayden. Uh, I love a, a Weller, for instance. That's that's my category, but everybody, like Travis was just saying, is is totally different, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, everyone's going to have a different uh, taste palette. So uh, what one person likes, another person might not like. Um, and uh, one thing that people don't realize is when you, you char that stave. Mm-hmm. There is actually over 300, I think, and 60 identifiable flavors that come out of a a charred stave, out of a charred barrel. And so there is a lot of interpretation up there for individual interpretation at that point.
2: Absolutely. Hey, uh, Jeff, this is Jim Perry. You here? Can you hear me?
4: Hey, Jeff, you there? Oh, I'm sorry. I had
2: a um, ear booger. <laughs> well, I want to start off is that I call you a, a brother from another mother, and that's the way you feel when you come in there with Jeff, you know. Yes, I, I think one hundred
4: percent. And I got to ask got a uh, got to ask Scott a question. Okay. Where the hell was you whenever I need you for the last crab boy, which was last week?
3: (laughs) I was looking (laughs) online salivating. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a lot, buddy. I'll I'll be out there in about 20 minutes, so uh, if you've got anything left over, especially the bourbon. Actually,
4: hey, come on. There's a lot going on and a lot of good blends, so Mm this would be a good time to come, but...
3: I'll be out there later.
4: Okay. Uh, So what was the question again? Because Scott will attest, I've got like a a two-second memory
2: Oh, uh, that's all right jeff i wanted you know i could say i consider you all all family as well too i will state you know for the record i brought people from all over the united states in there and they all they talk about is coming back again now they'll go taste some of the other distilleries they love their you know bourbon they love their woodford they love their wild turkey but they you had the most unique way to pull bourbon yourself set the cups up set the cups down if you do or don't like it then you blend it together uh, mingle it, however you want to call it, and then proof it down to your taste. Uh, you go yeah. as far as to actually uh, personalize the bottle. If you've got a, a child's birthday, or if you've got a boat, or you've got something, you can actually personalize the bottle for the, I know I'm sounding like a commercial for you, but, uh, no, it's all right. Uh, like Scott, I have such a passion for what you do over there. So, uh, so
4: you're 100% correct. What we do here is unique. The business model here is we reach out to folks as, is- uh is Travis said a while ago when you come into the door and I'm sure Scott said um you're we don't we don't believe in the word customer. Um we believe in the word uh, guest. When you come into our establishment, our distillery, you are a guest and that's how we're going to treat you. And just like you come in, you know, you have family come into your home, you are family. Now um when you come into the distillery and uh you're looking for something uh unique well actually most people really don't know what they're looking for to be honest with you and that's where we work with the folks and try to help them understand um that you don't have to you don't have to like what everybody else likes you don't have to follow uh the norm as a matter of fact we just <laughs> let your freak flag fly and come in here and and do something that is unique that nobody else on the planet has.
3: Well, Jeff, uh, one thing I can attest to is that uh, when anybody comes to your distillery, they're going to walk away with something that nobody else is ever going to have. Because when you walk out of that distillery, you're taking something out of a barrel that's going to continue to age after they leave. So that taste profile that they take away is going to be completely different. (laughs) So anybody coming to your distillery is going to have a -a one-of-a-kind bottle experience. And
5: and that's 100%. When I came here... um, You know, I was kind of innocent on the way that Jeff did business, but when he opened his doors and let me in, um, I'll be honest, uh, I get a lot of people that ask me every day, what is a good bourbon? And I tell them, well, a good bourbon is something that, that you like. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's something that's popular or if it's the bottom shelf. It's find what you like, experiment, taste all that you can, find what you like and don't tell nobody. <laughs> I mean, because uh, we know how bourbon is now. You tell somebody and everybody buys it. But uh, what Jeff did was he came in and he opened the doors and he said, find what you like, blend what you like, and we're going to bottle it. And that's going to be your specific special bottle. And that's what we do here. It's about the experience, not making money. And that's what I appreciate about Jeff and his establishment is it's about the experience. And that's what bourbon is. Bourbon is about family. Bourbon is about history, and bourbon is about the experience, and that's what they do here at J. Madeline.
3: Absolutely, and, and you take away the uh, you take away the uh, age statement on it as well. I mean, age has nothing to do with it. It's it's when it's ready to come out of the uh, barrel and it goes in that bottle the way you like it.
5: True, Absolutely, Jay. it's not it's not about um, uh, you know a twelve year bourbon or an eight year bourbon. It's about what tastes. Good and, and each barrel is specific. Um, each, as we all know, that barrels can come out of the barrel house in their own, you know, unique place. That's why certain bourbons get a place over others in the in the, in the market. Um, and that's why, you know, at J. Madliny, they take each barrel specifically and they look at it at the moment that they open it and they try it and we blend it and we see what we got. And if we got something good, we're going to bottle it.
2: Yes, Jeff, um, uh, I, can, I can tell you, uh, when you speak of family, too, I don't want to leave Trish out of the picture. I don't want to get her mad at us because she actually helps you run the whole show night and day over there. Um, I don't want to cut you guys off. We've got other guests that are waiting in line to get to us, and uh, and I, I'll i promise you this. Um, we'll all go out and get a lumberjack shirt and come see you, Jeff.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I no, want to be I'll invited to the
2: next boil too. Yeah,
3: absolutely.
4: Okay, so um, she's Trisha's kind of shy, so I'm going to throw her under the bus here. I had uh, uh, one of our uh, family go get her. But um, Trisha is super, super significant to this whole operation. She's the vice president, and uh, I'm going to shoot you straight. She's the one that keeps the wheels on. If you ask Scott, he's like, I don't know what the hell goes on here. (laughs) Trisha's the one that knows what goes on here. But um, Trisha's name is on the bottom of every single bottle, and the problems that we had with our bottles before was that they were getting uh, what do you call it knocked off or Travis? Is that
5: right? Oh, they were getting uh, they were getting priced up on the secondary market as fraudulent bottles. Mm.
4: So what happened was is um, to prevent that from happening, to let everybody know that they have an authentic bottle, is um, we had Trisha sign the base, the bottom of every single bottle. That way, you know it, you have an authentic bottle. So I tell you what, I'm going to put this uh, my earbud in 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 her ear, and uh, you're going to hear it from her. All right, here's Miss Trisha.
2: Hello, Trish, how are you? I miss you. How are you? That's good. Jim Perry here. i got Scott Pugh, which you'll have to look at in about 25 minutes, and uh, Jeff McCarl, who's our host. And uh, I, Again, I wouldn't go go through this interview without giving you a shout-out. I, mean, I know how much you mean that operation and how well you're uh, just family. Well, thank you so you. much. We yeah.
1: appreciate everything, and uh, I appreciate the shout-out for sure.
2: It really is a family operation. There's no doubt about that.
1: Yes, sir. It sure is. Thank you. I'll put Jeff back on. Well,
0: thank you guys so much for being a part of this, and we promise we'll have you on again in uh, Bourbon 30 out in Georgetown. Get out there and get yourself your own bourbon so you don't have to buy it off the shelves. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much. So long from Lexington, Kentucky, and our thanks to the Horse Racing Network for the use of their studios for the track kitchen.